0: So if you'd like to open your Bibles, your few Bibles, to page 3, the first reading comes from Genesis 4. It's the whole chapter. (laughs) Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Why are you angry?' The Lord said, "'What have you done? Listen, your your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth.'" Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence.'" I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mihajal, and Mihajal was the father of Methushal, and Methushal was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other named Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. tubal sister was Na- Namar. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If, Ca- if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. New Testament uh, reading comes from Hebrews 12, uh, verses 14 to 24, which is on page 853 of the Pew Bibles. Hebrews 12, 14 to 24. Make every effort to live in peace with men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears you have not come to a mountain that can be, sorry you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could no longer bear what was commanded if even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of of righteous men made perfect to Jesus the mediator of our new covenant and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.
1: everyone hear me? Great. Uh, hi everyone, my name's Dave. I'm sure I've met most of you before but I'm a student minister here at church and it's a, it's a great privilege to come and preach to you from God's Word. It'd be, um, I think, beneficial for you if you kept your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 4. Um, so why don't you um, keep that open, uh, flick back from Hebrews if you haven't got it there already and I'll, uh, I'll pray and we'll get into it. Our Father in heaven, we do just give you such great thanks for your Word Um, You are worthy of our praise, as we've already sung. Um, We thank you so much for gathering us in this room and for the people in this room. And we pray now that as you speak to us, um, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, many of you um, will know that great story and love it like I do. That story of G.K. Chesterton. Um, you know the guy who was invited by a newspaper called The Times to uh, write along with a number of eminent authors on the topic of what is wrong with the world and you know the story. He writes this, this brief response, he just says, dear sirs, what's wrong with the world today? He says, I am, respectfully yours, GK Chesterton. I love it. If you haven't heard it before, it's, it's good, isn't it? If you have heard it before, it's, it's punchy. Uh, Paul sort of started the sermon last week by saying pretty much the same thing. Not quite so punchy, though. Basically, the the story so far in Genesis has been God has created this beautiful creation. And in Genesis, what is the problem with the world? The Bible calls the problem sin. But I think G.K. Teston, he has, like, his answer is, is really compelling. It's not only punchy, but it doesn't locate the problem out there. The problem isn't a political party. It isn't another country. It isn't a group of terrorists. The problem with the world isn't a subculture of of people. It's everywhere and it's in all people. Um, Arthur Solzhenitsyn uh, wrote a number of years ago the reality after reflecting on so many of the troubles that he experienced in his world. He was locked up in prison. He served in the Second World War. He served in a concentration camp. And he came to realize, he writes that the line between good of between good and evil doesn't doesn't sort of cross between countries or different political parties it goes right between the hearts right through the hearts of every single one of us it's a punchy description to say I am the problem of of, of this world really but it's also personal so the problem is me the problem is not a part of me that doesn't really belong to me it's not evil actions that really I sort of can't associate with myself. It's me. I can't escape the fact that the problem is me. And I think this truth, this truth about the world, this truth about all of humanity, this problem that the Bible calls sin, this is what we need to set up as the problem. This is what we need to instill as the problem and the enemy in our lives. Sin. It's, a, it's an awkward word. What uh, other word can bring at the same time... How, how, can it be, how can a word at the same time be used so trivially by gossip magazines to talk about you know, people's misdemeanors, but at the same time uh, be used by people to sort of judge them, to really place the heat on someone when they've done something wrong? Uh, it's this word that is used in different, different ways, but it speaks a truth that we need to face. And this is the problem that we, that we need to face, that our problems in this world are crucially linked to our own sin, the sin that we own that is part of ourselves. Now I want to read something from John Piper, uh, a pastor in America. You might have heard of him. Of him. And he said recently in this quote, oh, he didn't say it, he wrote it. Let me just read to you this. It's, it's a fairly longish quote, but I think it's worth it. As I look across the Christian landscape, I think it is fair to say concerning sin, and he said and he quotes Jeremiah, they have healed the wound of my people too lightly. I take this to refer to leaders who should be helping the church know and feel the seriousness of indwelling sin and how to fight and kill it. Instead, the depth, the complexity, the ugliness and the danger of sin in professing Christians is either minimized because we're already justified or it's psychologized as a symptom to woundedness rather than corruption. And this is a tragically light healing. He goes on, I call it a tragedy because by making life easier for ourselves in minimizing the nature and seriousness of sin, we become greater victims of it. We are in fact not healing ourselves Because most of the miseries that people report in their lives are not owing to the diseases but the symptoms. They feel a general malaise and they don't know why. Their marriages are at a breaking point. They feel weak in their spiritual witness and devotion. Their workplace is embittered. Their church is tense with unrest. Their fuse is short with their children. They report these miseries as if they were the disease. They want the symptoms removed. How many of our troubles, if we were to think about it, if we were to really sit and take stock, how many of our troubles, our perceived failures, our anxieties, our conflicts find their root in sin? We need to make this connection between our troubles and the problem in the world. Our great enemy, the enemy that we need to fear and do battle with daily is the enemy that lives inside of us. And it's a sin that we can't take lightly. So what we're going to do now is uh, step through this passage in Galatians 4, and we're going to look through this, this passage on Cain and Abel, which I think speaks a profound message to the concept of sin. I can't think of another passage that speaks more vividly. Um, it's, it's truly remarkable. Um, we've got four points to look at it. Uh, the sin conspiracy, the sin ultimatum, the sin supremacy, and the God identity. I got kind of caught up in the Jason Bourne theme, so I'm a bit of a tragic. Sorry about that. Hope you can cope with me. Uh, we saw it last week, anyway. If we're going to start with the sin conspiracy uh, in chapter three, and it really is the defining moment. It's where God's good creation starts turning pear-shaped. Not only with the humanity, of course, we see uh, humans and humans break, uh, break down a relationship. We see uh, God and uh, humans break in relationship, and we see. Uh, The world and humans break down in relationship. And you've got to sort of wonder, what is life like now that uh, mankind, Adam and Eve, don't live in the garden anymore? Um, Now that they've sort of been separated from God's blessings, what's life like? And as we look um, in the first couple of verses, we see actually life isn't too bad. Life isn't too bad. Um, Back in chapter 1, God had purposes for humanity. Um, What was it? In chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it. And what do you know? In the first few verses here in chapter 4, it's precisely what happens. They are fruitful and they increase in number. God gives Adam a helping start, of course. He can't do it by himself. But after that, he gets onto it and he has two kids, Cain and Abel. Um, So what are they doing? They're multiplying and filling the earth. Um, Cain and Abel grow up a bit, of course, so we're looking at this passage in a bit of a time-lapse camera. We're getting snapshots as they grow up and we see that they begin to subdue the earth. You can see them there, uh, Abel. Uh, keeps the flocks, they're country boys. Uh, Cain looks after the stock, the soil rather. And here they are. They're doing what God wanted humanity to do. They're, f- they're filling the earth, they're, sub- they're filling the earth, they're increasing in number and they're subduing it. Uh, next we see in verses 3 and 4 that uh, uh, Cain and Abel, uh, they're not, uh, if we remember back to chapter 3, there was a curse placed on the soil and there was a curse placed on childbearing. And so What they've been doing is something of a bit of a painful experience as they fulfill this, but it's not fruitless. And evidence of that is here as Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to the Lord. They've actually produced fruit from the labor. And, you know, uh, you might speculate what has provoked this kind of offering. Um, What, you know, is there a law that says you need to bring offerings? You know, Leviticus isn't written yet. There's no sort of law that they need to bring animal sacrifices or grain sacrifices to the Lord. But I think what this is, is basically the straightforward response when people realise that God gives them everything they need. Thank you, Lord. You mean so much to me that here is an expression of my thanks and praise, and and here it is. And he just and they just make it, make a, a a sacrifice, a sacrifice of worship. And so the creation outside of the garden is actually going pretty well. Um, you've even got this little sign. Uh, it's, it's kind of cute the way that Cain goes and, act and offers a sacrifice and then Abel kind of f- follows suit and does the same thing and copies his older brother. Uh, but very quickly, uh, it only takes a few verses, we see that things aren't right. And the sin that came into the world in chapter 3 bears down on rea- in reality in a big way. Um, have a look at verses 4 and 5. This is where it all seems to pivot. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. And so Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. It's kind of confusing and it raises a few questions for us. Why did the Lord not look with favour on Cain? What's he done wrong? And sure, you look back and you see, okay, he only brought some of the fruits of his labours. Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. But isn't the fact that Cain brought a sacrifice in the first place a good thing? He wasn't meant to bring it. Does it matter how big a sacrifice is that you bring to the Lord? Isn't it the heart that counts? Does God just prefer lamb? What's going on? Well I think the letter of the Hebrews and uh, the bit just before Dave read out to us really helps us out. Um, <clears throat> you never know how the, the author of the New Testament sometimes actually know these kinds of things. Maybe he had a inspired speculation, or maybe he knew the Hebrew idiom better than uh, we do. But in chapter 11 of, of Hebrews, it says, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. And it becomes clear that the issue was faith and that God wants the heart. Cain's action had the form of worship, but it lacked the heart. It wasn't a faithful, joyful, cheerful, true Generous act of sacrifice, it was half hearted. It was calculated. He worked hard for that stuff. He wasn't going to give it away easily. And this is where sin begins to conspire it's in the heart. You'll engage with worship, you'll sing the songs, you'll say, Amen, you'll serve, you'll be there in body, but it's half hearted. And sin conspires by taking your eyes away from the goodness of God, away from the power of God, and it starts to look inwards at yourself. It starts to grasp after the things that it can gain. It starts to set up things that are security for themselves. And what happens next is that Cain is filled with all these confusing emotions. He's, see there, he's angry and his face is downcast. He's depressed. It can be so confusing, can't it? Sometimes we're angry and we just can't find a reason. Sometimes we, we cry and it's not really obvious why we're doing that. Maybe it's hormones. Sometimes it's caffeine or a lack of sleep. And it's not really made clear here. We don't have anything to go on. But I think there's little doubt that lying behind these feelings that are so powerful, powerfully residing within Cain, lies both a jealousy for his brother who's just outshone him greatly in this sacrifice, a jealousy and a resentment of the God who's just made a judgment on him. So lying beneath these emotions is this, this sinful attitude that conspires just there beneath the surface. But if you look at verse 6, in any case, like a good friend, like a, like a loving father, the Lord comes and speaks to him. God is so good, isn't he? The God who created the world by speaking, speaks to Cain. And he puts his his finger precisely on the issue that needs to be said. He says, why? Why are you angry? Why are you depressed? Why is your face downcast? And he graciously counsels Cain and bids him to sort of untangle this conspiracy of sin that's going on in his life. And we'll see it throughout the whole thing. God is so gracious. But verse 7 describes the sin ultimatum. And after counselling him, or as part of his counselling, God gives what I think is probably the most vivid description of sin in the Bible. I can't think of another one. But have have a look at verse 7. If you do what is right... Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And I think there's three things to notice here. First, you can see that sin is the result of a choice to do or not do what is right. It isn't something that you can blame on your genetic makeup. It isn't a guilt that you inherit from your parents. It's not a sickness or a condition. It's not a cocktail of all of your previous experiences that somehow determine what you do. Now in the end in all of the confusion of this sin is an action performed by us that we're responsible for. Second, notice the metaphor that God uses. Sin is crouching at your your door and it desires to have you. He pictures this battle with sin that's going on inside of Cain as like a battle with a wild animal like a lion, a ravenous, predatory animal, crouching at the door, hiding there, licking its lips, waiting to come and have a feed, to catch him by surprise. It's a really rich, powerful metaphor. You know, it talks about sin as, as both dangerous, and we'll see just the danger and the destructive nature of sin in a little while as we see what happens to Cain in the future and and sadly and tragically we see Cain's downfall. But we also see this, this image creates this amazing insight into the way that sin is hidden. Sin hides behind our excuses. You say something rude or offensive to someone and you excuse yourself by saying, oh, it's just feeling a little emotional. You're grumpy and you say, oh, it's just been a tough week. You have one or two too many drinks and you say, oh, but I've just been so stressed this week. You're withdrawn. You're bad-tempered. You speak to someone with even the slightest hint of malice and you excuse yourself by saying, oh, I'm just so tired at the moment. You see the way that sin hides behind our excuses as though we're, you know, excuses that sort of remove us from our responsibility. We can even... Create a positive spin on sin without realising it. Hurting someone's feelings hides itself as humour. Gossiping hides behind the expression of your concern for someone. Happens all too often. Holding a grudge hides behind a moral outrage. Workaholism hides behind having attention to detail. Materialism hides behind taking care of ourselves. An obsession with your good looks hides itself behind good grooming. Can you see how easily we hide these things? Or well, this sin kind of just hides just beneath the surface, just out of mind's sight, just so that we can't see that it's down there. But sin is a choice, and it's hidden. And the third thing to notice that God's, in God's ultimatum to Cain is he says, you must master it. There's an imperative that God puts on it this dangerous beast that lies within you, Cain, you need to master it. Just like Adam was, was commanded by God to master or subdue all of the beasts, all of the animals in the world, so Cain is, is sort of commanded to, do, to look after, or not look after, but subdue this one animal, just one. You must subdue it. You need to rule over yourself. But in verse 8, we begin to see the supremacy of sin. Tragically, we see that Cain can't even rule over the beast that lies in his own heart. And the beast slowly destroys him. If you remember back to last week, you'll remember that uh, Adam and Eve had to be talked into their sin by the serpent. Whereas this week, uh, in chapter 4, we see that Cain can't even be talked out of his sin by God. And it's almost, in fact, as though God hadn't even spoken to him. Have a look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And so sin begins, it's destruction. What follows is a a series of scenes that show the unfolding destruction of sin. And the first one is somewhat predictable because we know the character of God. Um... It's the, it's the Lord who is righteous and he hears, he hears the justice crying out from Abel's blood that has been poured on the ground. And so he, he, he judges Cain. And so the destruction actually, first, well not firstly, but in, in, one, in one aspect comes from the Lord. And he judges him with a, with a punishment that suits the crime. He curses him. The ground that was forced to drink the blood of his brother no longer yields crops for him. And then, secondly, he says that Cain will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and we see that play out in the story. But to leave the destruction of sin as just the judgment of God, well, it's it belittles the destruction of sin. There's more to say, and we can see it play out in Cain's life, um, in the callousness and the selfishness we see. I started playing guitar a few years ago, and I was okay on the nylon strings the soft ones that you can sort of pluck and, you know, it sounds kind of nice when you play it. But as soon as you start playing a steel string guitar, it starts killing Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And you, just, like, you start making these massive dents in your fingers and, you know, you can't play it for more than 20 minutes at a time because you start squealing, like it's just so sore. But over time, as you start doing it more and more, you play a little bit each day, these little calluses build up in your fingers and you're able to sort of play the nastiest, of steel string guitars and it's, and it's fantastic. It's good fun. And a steel string guitar sounds great because of that. An old Jewish proverb makes the same point with regard to sin. Commit a sin twice and it will not seem a shame. Sorry, it will not seem a crime. See, once you sin, then your heart is toughened and it becomes calloused. Your heart is calloused. And this is part of the destruction of sin it becomes less and less noticeable the more you do it. And, you know, what became sensitive to you at one point just starts to wash over you, and it doesn't seem to matter anymore. And in Cain's case, once you murder your brother, speaking rudely and lying to the Lord's nothing. And you can see there, what does he say? The Lord says, where's your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He knows exactly where it is. And yes, he is his brother's keeper. So calloused. And listen to Cain's response to his punishment after God issues his punishment. What does he say? Oh, what have I done? Abel, my, my little brother. No, he doesn't say that. Oh, Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry for the grief that I've caused you. No. He complains. He complains. His, his mind is just self-centered. My punishment is more than I can bear. And so his concerns remain exactly where they have been all along, on himself. And sin is destroying him by making him selfish, turning his eyes away from the glories of God and the place where his eyes should have been as he sacrificed and continually focusing them on himself. It destroys him. And ultimately Cain gets what he wants. And God's punishment as he's a, a restless wanderer on the earth is exactly what he wants. And it and it's so, uh, so well describes people in our world, doesn't it? People who want freedom from themselves, freedom from their brothers and sisters, freedom from their God, freedom from their responsibilities. And so many of our people, people gain these freedoms. And what better description of them is there? And restless wanderer. So the character of sin is seen. Uh, a little sort of Jason Bourne identity uh, slideshow, I guess, is finished. As we've seen uh, sin conspire as it grows in the heart, as the, as the, um, as the sin ultimatum is, is called upon Cain and as the sin supremacy is made real in his life and it just destroys him. If we had more time, we'd go and see just the arrogance that's shown on the generations that followed in Cain's line in Lamech, who just strives to be like God and sin has expressed itself further. Uh, It's depressing. But there's another character in this story that we haven't paid your attention to. And he's there in every scene, and it's God. Um, Over the last few weeks, we've looked at Genesis and we've seen just how wonderful God is just how good he is in creating this beautiful world. And this week, well, it's no exception. The God who brought the planets and the sun and the moon helps Eve to bring a son into the world. You see there in verse 1, it was the Lord who helped her. The God who simply speaks and there's light and air and mountains and oceans so graciously counsels Cain all the way through, despite the fact that he didn't sin. He never wrote him off. His judgment hurt Cain. But it was never without love. It was never unfair. And in the end, he would never completely forsake Cain. But ironically, he becomes Cain's keeper in a way that Cain was never a keeper for his brother. And in the end, you see, as you read the rest of chapter 4, he blessed his family with, with children and with cities and with all sorts of uh, you know, music and livestock and engineering. And look at the end there in verse 25 and 26. God continues to graciously provide. He provides Eve with a son to replace the one she lost. And in his grace, this new family begins to call on the name of the Lord. See, part of the reason for this story is that it, the reason that it's in the Bible, is that it forms part of the bigger story of Genesis, the unfolding of God's plans to bless the world, despite the failure of humanity, despite the reality of sin in the world. And so, you know, God is yet to show the full extent of his love and blessing and humanity is yet to show the full extent of its, of its evil and sin. But the beginnings of the story are paved here. The climax, of course, is yet to come, where the son of Adam comes and defeats this beast. He defeats, he masters temptation and, and rules over the beast called sin. Like Abel, his brothers kill him. And like Abel, his blood that is shed cries out. I'm not sure if you picked up the reference to Abel in our our Bible reading before that Dave read out before, uh, but it makes a profound statement about Jesus. Um, After sort of exhorting or urging his readers to be holy, he comforts them. And so, as you've not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, or storm, that's not the kind of God you've come to. You've come to Mount Zion. You have come to Jerusalem as the sitting of the living God. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. While Abel's blood cried for justice, Jesus' blood shed on the cross, shed in the place of sinners who are joined to him by faith, his blood speaks a better word. It says mercy. This is the bigger picture of this story for, uh, makes a part of. Forms a part of the wonderful gospel of Jesus, the old, old story. If this isn't a story that you know and love, then please talk to someone about it tonight. Get to know it, um, read about it in the scriptures. It is a good story. But another reason for this story is that it forms a a really stern warning for us about the seriousness of sin. We know the forgiveness of the Lord. Uh, We know it if we're Christians, we know the forgiveness of the Lord. But the danger of the church is that we don't take our enemy seriously. That this sin will just hover beneath the surface and pick away at us and cause troubles that we're not even aware are caused by sin. And we need to let these reflections penetrate into our lives. I think there's two things that we need to do. We need to recognize the gravity of sin and we need to recognize the glory of God. And then we need to recognize the gravity of sin and recognize the glory of God And we need to keep doing that over and over again. Weekly, we need to do it daily. This needs to be so much a part of our life that it's just who we are. This is just what we do now. This is what we do because we're Christians. Consider the ways that sin is hidden. Consider the way that it conspires in your life. Consider the ways that it is destroying Consider the ways that it is so selfish and inward turned. Consider the ways that your hearts have become calloused. When you read the word of God, does your heart prick? Does your conscience uh, pay attention? Or does it just wash over you? When you hear sermons, do you just sit there thinking, I wonder if there's anything I can learn that's new today? Have you become a sermon connoisseur? You sit there and just take it in and, and think, oh yeah, I've heard this one before. I know what he's going to say. And you've you've told the sermon in your head before they speak it. Well, take perhaps God's counsel to Cain as a starting point. Why are you angry? Why? Why is your face downcast? Why are you grumbling so much? Why are you always tired? Why are you no longer... As joyful as you were, where is your love? Maybe you need to time, take some time out to think about the pattern of sin in your life and set up some strategies, uh, and think about how to def- defeat the, this this beast that lives within us. I've got some friends who have um, who I've spoken to over the years, and, and here are some of the examples of what they've they've said to me that they've done to sort of try and subdue this beast in their lives. Uh, one friend of mine got rid of his computer. Another friend destroyed all of his CDs. Another one sold his house and decided to rent instead. Another friend of mine doesn't go to the movies anymore. He just made a rule. He doesn't go to the movies anymore. Another friend has made a significant career change. Other friends have moved house. Uh, People I know have stopped drinking coffee and started doing some exercise and starting eating well and sleeping so that they're not prone to temptation as much. And other people, many people I know, have pulled out their diary and pulled out their bank's balance, two really strong indicators of where, the Christian, where, your, where your priorities lie, and they've tried to see where their priorities lie and tried to make adjustments where they need to. We need to recognise the gravity of sin in our life and take action. But then, of course... We need to recognize the glory of God. And our problems as we struggle as Christians, the answer isn't to turn to psychology, to blame your circumstances. The answer is to turn to the Savior. Uh, The answer is to look outside of ourselves. It's to do what Cain didn't do, to look to God, the true and living one, the powerful one who creates. So consider the glory of God. Let the wisdom and word of God, speak his grace and truth into your life. Make regular appointments with him. Have a quiet time with him regularly. Read and pray, the, pray to the Lord. Consider Jesus, the good physician. Consider him and think about him. Allow him to make the deep incisions in your life that you need, the deep ones. Let him get the scalpel out and cut deep into your tissue to cut out those tumorous sins that dwell inside you. Consider the prince of peace who issues the true and lasting peace that other things can't offer. When you're racked with guilt, consider Jesus, our great high priest, who makes you pure and clean. Consider him who died, who has put to death your sin, Consider him who rose again, who breathes new life into you. Consider Jesus the King, the Lord, the Messiah, and let him reign in your heart. Consider Jesus the Good Shepherd, who guides you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and just. Thank you for the way that it speaks so clearly into our situations, um, that it highlights the danger and the lethal nature of sin. And we just want to ask that you would bring the the importance and the danger uh, of this sin to our attention. Um, We pray that you'd give us the strength and the courage to make changes in our life where it's necessary. And Father, we pray by your grace that you would grant us a love for you in our hearts and that you would work in us powerfully by your Spirit to bring healing. For your great name's sake. Amen.